Amen. Whew. I couldn't help but think one of the great aspects of, of worship is indebtedness. Everything we are and everything we have is because of God. Amen. And that's why eternity is not too long to praise and worship our God. I sort of have to smile when Christians go, what are we going to be doing up there for all of eternity? I'm like, well, if you feel like somehow, you know, you can get to the end of praising God for everything, I don't think so. I don't think so. In fact, I think we only recognize that everything is about him and should be for him whenever we realize the fact that if it was just left up to God, if it was just what God needed, the self-existent God, he would have been perfectly fine just being God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect fellowship with all of them. And that would have been fine for all of eternity. He never needed to add anything to the three of them. So that means everything we see in our universe, in fact, obviously our universes go way beyond even what we can see today with even all of our modern technology. Everything that God has created and one day will reveal to us is for us, not for him. He, he doesn't need any of it. He did everything in the universe and everything for the universe out of his love for us, not out of his own need. He didn't need any of it. Just amazing. Just amazing. Sorry, sometimes it's just as I'm worshiping, God's just doing something. I'm sure you don't have that happen to you, right, when you're worshiping? Yeah. Good stuff. I want to begin in Exodus chapter 20 and get a running start into 21. Now, let me say this. I'm going to give a disclaimer. I usually don't do that because... The word of God is amazing no matter what chapter. But you, you do realize as you're reading through the Bible, there are some chapters, especially in the Old Testament, you're going, oh boy. This is, I got to like trudge through this. You know, it, it might be a whole chapter of genealogy or something. And you're going, why God are you putting? And so we're coming to three chapters, chapter 21, 22, and 23 of Exodus that are going to be tedious. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. A lot of principles and stuff in there but it's for a reason and God gave it to the Israelites for a reason and I think you and I can glean some really good stuff out of studying these chapters as well so I hope you'll hang in there with me over these next couple of weeks and then once we get through 23 then we're on to the building of the tabernacle and the priesthood and all kinds of great stuff great stuff that even pictures for us and illustrates for us our Lord Jesus Christ. I think it will make it even more meaningful to you maybe than ever before. So just let's hang in there together and get through this. But I wanted to begin in verse 22 through 26 because at the end of chapter 20, after God has revealed his commandments, and remember that's on the heels of God revealing himself. Because again, without a proper reverence and respect for him as 
a person for who he is, we will not put proper weight onto what he says. We will not listen to him properly. So he, God, wants to reveal himself to his people, hopefully have their reverence and respect for him rising so that when he speaks to them, they will yield, they will surrender, they will listen, just as we just sung about. So in verses 22 through 26, God is reminding them about things that he's really already talked to them about. And it's also a reminder to us that it's okay to be repetitive. God repeats a lot of things to his people because he understands we don't get it on the first time. Right? We need, we need it drilled into us time and time again. So I want you to note, first of all, in, in verse 22 and, and 23, that God is reminding his own people, I am a transcendent God. I am so great, I am beyond anything and anyone, and there is nothing or no one that you can compare to me. Notice what he says to Moses, thus you will tell the Israelites, you yourselves have seen that I have spoken with you from heaven. Now, isn't that interesting? God didn't say, you have heard that I have spoken to you from heaven. Notice he says, you have seen that I have spoken from heaven. Because again, it was in the manifestation of his glory on that mountain that he spoke then from that expression of his glory. And so God wants them to understand, I am a God that wants to fill up your senses. I want you to be able to touch me, to feel me, to smell me, to, to see me, to hear me. I want to engage every sense because that's the way God created us. He didn't create us without purpose. He gave us all these senses, not only so that we could sense our creation that he put us in, but, but so that we could sense him and experience him on every level of our senses that we have. And so God here is saying, I want you to understand. And that's why he says in verse 23, don't make idols. Because no, no likeness of me, no idol of me is going to capture me. You're reducing me. Don't put me in your box just so you can make me a more manageable God. Let me be God and let me be on what you can think of, what you can comprehend, what you can understand. Don't try to bring me down to your level. And we as Christians even struggle with that. You know, just letting God be great and way beyond anything that we could ever imagine. But God is reminding his people, that's what I want. And that's why I've said the things that I've said to you. Let me be beyond you always. Don't try to always think that you can figure me out. Then he talks about altars in verse 24, 25, and 26. He says you could make an altar of earth, or in verse 25, you could make an altar of stone. The point I want to make here about these altars is it has to do, obviously, with proper worship. God is, again, teaching his people how he wants to be worshipped. And there's a simplicity in the building of the altars. It's not really important what the altars look like as much as the sacrifice on top of the altar. And remember, God here in this section of Exodus, 
is really drilling down on transforming a group of slaves, former slaves, into magnificent worshipers. And, and that's what God wants to do with all of us. He wants to take us from being slaves to sin to devoted, enthusiastic worshipers of himself. But he has to teach us how to do that. That's why even Jesus said, you need to worship me in spirit and in truth. That's how God wants to be worshiped. And in the Old Testament, he used all these different things to show his people, this is how I want to be worshiped. And there was a purpose behind it all. And we're going to see that throughout our the rest of our study of the book of Exodus. Obviously, he talks here in verse 24 about burnt offerings. Even at that stage, because God wanted to, again, lay a foundation for his people that you cannot approach me, you cannot engage me, you cannot be in my presence apart from sacrifice. Sacrifice makes the way to God. Obviously, that's pointing to a time in the future where the Lamb of God would be the ultimate sacrifice that would bring us to God. But here, all of these burnt offerings and sacrifices were not only a reminder about being totally consumed before God, but about the fact that something was going to have to give up its life as a substitute in order for us to engage the presence of God. The peace offering then that came after the burnt offering was celebrating the peace that would come as we listened to God and obeyed and did the things in our worship that we were supposed to do. We would enjoy then his peace and offer peace offerings of your sheep and cattle. But then comes the phrase I shared with you before our worship. In every place where I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you. That's key. I, I even underlined that in my Bible. I will come to you. I will manifest my presence, and that's the ultimate blessing. I will bless you with my presence. And you will build places of worship that follow the manifestation of my presence. If you make an altar of stone, you must not build it of stone shaped with tools. Make it natural. Don't use anything man-made because I don't want it to be defiled. He even talks to them about the steps of the altar in verse 26 up to the altar at this point. And why does he say that? Because at this point in their history, they wore robes with no, very little undergarments. And so it would be a thing of modesty to not have steps, obviously. He talks about their nakedness. But now later on, he would prescribe an undergarment for the priests and undergarments for the people that they would wear under the robe, and then they could build altars that had steps later on. So these instructions are preparation for the people of God in connection with the worship of God. And again, it shows the, the priority, the primacy that God places on worship and making sure that we acknowledge who he is and that he is beyond us, and then to worship him in the way that he prescribes, not the way we want to worship God, but the way he tells us to worship him. And again, he's setting that all up here. I used this verse again last week, Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires or really wants of you. 
And that's true here. God is a God of great detail. And that's what I want to then talk about as we jump into chapter 21 tonight. As we get to chapters 21, 22, and 23, several things stand out that sort of can be a, a, a blanket, if you will, over all of these chapters we're going to talk about. One is this. We are going to see in these chapters that God is interested in and cares for anyone and everyone. Let me repeat that. In these chapters, we're going to be reminded that our God is interested and cares about anyone and everyone, okay? The second thing we're going to see in these chapters, again, God is a God of precision. He is very precise in his direction uh, of how to do things and how to worship. He leaves very little room to, you know, figure it out. It's like, this is what I want. I mean, we're going to see later on down to how many ringlets God wants in the construction of the curtains that go into the tabernacle. Not six, not seven, you know. I mean, he's that precise, which also then brings me to another. He's in the details. God is in the minutest details of our life, which should remind us there is no detail of our life that God isn't interested and doesn't care about and no detail of our life that we can't take to him. That's somehow too small. You know, many times even as God's people, we, you know, we take the big things. We wait till the big crisis comes into our life and then all of a sudden like we're on our knees and we're, you know, engaging with God. God wants us to take everything and anything to him. And, and we're, that's reinforced as he sets forth these decisions that he is setting before the people through the leadership and mediatorship of Moses. So notice verse one. These are the decisions, literally the divine laws of God that you, Moses, will set before them. Now, a couple things. The word decision here is very important. The word Lord that we use, Adonai, capital L, small O, small R, small D. One of the ways that word for God, that description of God, that name for God can be defined or translated is he decides. He decides. That's what it means to have him as Lord. Not my decision. He decides for us. And that's important to remember again because that's tied in with our concept of God, who we believe our God to be. Is he the Lord? Is he the greatest thing in the universe, the greatest person in the universe? There's no one greater, no one higher. Then when he says something, then that should be it. It should be settled. Okay, So the only way that we don't follow what God says is we don't have the proper respect and reverence for him that we should have because if we did, every time he would speak, we would go, you're right, Lord, 
You got it. It's your decision, not mine. The fact that he tells Moses to set these before the Israelites also reminds us that you and I, we can't force God's ways upon other people. All we can do is place the word of God before them. They have to make their own choice, just like we do. The word of God is placed before us, but it's a heart issue of whether we're going to obey it and follow it or not. God gives it to us, but he won't force it upon us. It's simply set. It's like a table. He will put the food out there, but it's up to us to come and partake. You see. And then the word them actually in the original Hebrew means before their face or faces. Now think about that. In God's mind, I want my word. I want these principles that should be an ever-present compass for living life. I want them to be ever before the face of my people so that they constantly have this compass for living life and for worshiping me right there before their face. It, it's, it's like they can't get around it. In fact, if it's before their face, they literally would have to like, you know, try to avoid it to see something else. Unlike today, maybe, we put so many other things in front of our face to guide us and direct us and somehow God's word gets shoved to the side. No, God says, put it right there. Right there. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Keep it ever present before your face. Let it guide you. Then he starts talking about servants and slaves. And this obviously is, takes a lot of people back. Like, wait a minute. These people were just delivered from slavery in Egypt for 430 years. Why are we even talking about them having slaves or servants? Shouldn't God just be like, we're done with that? Well, yes. But God deals in reality, not in fantasy. And God understands that there is going to be some type of service or servanthood throughout history. There just is. I talked about that Sunday. There still is today. Because this word doesn't just speak about the kind of slavery that is a terrible tragedy in our country's own history in Israel's history, we're talking here about household servants. Again, as I used it Sunday, more like the Downton Abbey way of looking at servants. Because you see, being a servant sometimes was the only recourse that people had at that point to earn a living, to pay off a debt. See, that's the way some people paid off their debt. If they were indebted to somebody, the only way they could pay that debt off was to serve them, you see. So it was something that was sort of incorporated into the culture. What God, though, was doing was this. Amazingly, he was saying, 
I care about servants. Servants weren't cared about. Servants were just, you know, nothing. You could treat a servant however you wanted to treat a servant. They were servants. They, they had no rights. They had no privileges. Not before God. God cares about anyone and everyone. And so the Israelites, though they were slaves in Egypt, their first thought was going to be to take great care not to do what Egypt had done to them to do to others. And we all know that can be a struggle. You know, we talk about principles like hurt people hurt people or abusers become, or those who have been abused become abusers. Well, guess what? Those who were slaves can very easily become those who want slaves and have slaves. It's just the way it is. And so God here is going to lay out principles of how to do it well and to treat every human being, even slaves, with respect, with dignity, and honor. So he talks about if you buy a Hebrew household servant, he's only to serve for six years, but in the seventh year, he will go out free without paying anything. It won't cost him anything because ultimately it's always about freedom with God. God doesn't want anyone to have to serve forever. He wants them to experience freedom and be set free from this. If he came in by himself, he'll go out by himself. Again, he's giving all these principles. I'm not going to necessarily go down through all of this, but what God is doing is, again, showing them in their society how they need to treat other people. Even the lowliest of their society, household servants, are to be treated a certain way. Notice he says in verse 5, that if the servant should declare, or excuse me, if I go back up, if his master, verse 4, gave him a wife and she bore sons or daughters, the wife and the children will belong to her master, and he will go out by himself unless he can take care of them. See, maybe, maybe God is protecting the wife and the children. If the servant has no means of protecting the wife and children and providing for them, then they need to stay with somebody who can. All of these principles, God is saying, I'm doing this so that every human being in that society can be looked out after. Because I'm a God that cares about anyone and cares about everyone. But then I love this, verse 5. If the servant should declare, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master must bring him to the judges. He will bring him to the door, the doorpost. His master will pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. The reason I love that is because to me, that's a picture of us as New Testament Christians. I don't do what I do. We don't do what we do because it's duty and obligation. We do what we do supposed to because we love our master. Amen. We love our God. We do it out of love, out of affection for God. And everything we do is motivated by our love for the master. And we give up our own rights, our own freedom, our own will. As I talked about Sunday, what is a servant? A servant is one who lives for the will of another. And here's a picture of a servant that says, no, I don't want to go out. I don't want to be apart from you. I want to serve you forever. And so by piercing his ear with an awl into the doorpost of the house, he is permanently attached to that house 
And that piercing becomes an, an external expression of the attitude of his heart. His heart is, I love my master. I want to serve him forever. And that should be us as well. We should willingly say, Lord, I don't want to do the things I do because I feel I have to. I do the things that I do in life because I want to, out of my love for you. There is no other motivation for the Christian than that. Any other motivation is not a proper motivation. It's got to be out of love. And all of us have to check our hearts to make sure that that's why we do what we do. Is it out of love for God? And then, obviously, love for others, the two greatest commands. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And we're going to get to that. Obviously, you're already getting to that. They were responsible to care for one another. Notice over in verse 7, there were provisions and protections for female servants. Again, a member of society that up to this point had no rights, no privileges, no one was looking out. You think no one was looking out for a male servant. No one was really looking out for female servants. And God in verses 7 through 11 basically says, oh, no, no. No, you can't just treat a female servant however you want to. You got to take care of her. In fact, in verse 11, notice he says, if a master does not provide for her, then he suffers the loss of her. He, he doesn't get to keep her. If he doesn't take good care of his female servant, then he loses the privilege of having that female servant, and she gets to go out free, again, costing her nothing for her freedom. That, that was unheard of, you see. Again, for us, these things don't make much of an impact, maybe as much as they should. But God was laying down these principles to show his people the worship of me cannot be separated from how you treat other people. Again, there is no compartmentalization in the worship of God. There is no secular and sacred. All of life is to be worship of God. All of life is to be lived before the face of God. And God says, you cannot say you worship me and you love me and then you treat people around you like dirt. You can't say that because it will affect your worship of me. And it's not the way to express proper worship of me. If you want to express proper worship of me, you not only have to worship me in the way that I'm telling you to worship me, you've got to treat every person around you that you come in contact with a certain way. That's also showing how you worship me. That you take them into consideration that you care about their life and their property and everything about them, that you are constantly being thoughtful, kind, considerate, sympathetic, empathetic towards others and towards what they're going through. Oh, do we need to hear that today. I mean, we could say, well, this is Old Testament stuff. Yeah, we need this today. In the church, we need it. In our country, we need it. In the world, we need this kind of mindset. And it was something that God wanted to instill in his people from the get-go. In fact, beginning in verse 12, as you can see, we're not going to get very far tonight. That's okay. 
He wants to settle into them a foundation of sanctity of life, that the value and worth of every life is to be established because he says if someone strikes someone and they die, that person is put to death. Now, if they don't do it with premeditation, it's an accident, then I will appoint for them a place of refuge that they may flee. And if you look in the book of Numbers, chapter 35, verses 11 through 15, God prescribed six refuge cities for people to flee to so that, that someone would not take vengeance on them for killing somebody accidentally. Premeditated murder, life for a life. Accidental killing, no. And if somebody wanted vengeance, then God provided even a refuge city for them to flee to. But if he willfully attacks his neighbor, verse 14, and kills him, you even take him from my altar. There's no sanctuary with God. I don't care if he's in my house. If he's guilty, then he needs to pay for his crime. Then notice verse 15. Here's some, some things that today would just blow people away. Whoever assaults his father or mother must surely be put to death. Why was that so important for God? Because everything in society starts with the foundation of the home. And God says, parental authority carries divine protection from me. You cannot have an orderly society where children are the ones that's running the home. Parents have to, that's, that's part of our, we have inmates running jails, we have students running schools, we have children running homes today. That's not the way God ordered it. And that's part of the reason why our society is so out of order. Orderliness, respect for authority and all of that. A child is never going to learn to respect a God they cannot see if they do not learn to respect a parent that they can see. That's why God is so strong here on that. Then he talks in verse 16 about slave trade and human trafficking. Literally, the word in verse 16 in the Hebrew isn't kidnap, it's steal. Whoever steals someone, and that goes back to the command. Thou shalt not steal, including a human being. And you hold him. That person must surely be put to death. Why? Because people's lives matter. Every life counts. And the way we treat each other has got to be something that we think more of. Instead of taking people's lives and, and kidnapping people, this, their life isn't ours to take. And then down to verse 17 again, back to the home. Whoever treats his father or his mother disgracefully, literally with contempt or to be of no regard, shall surely be put to death. God gave us parents, gave us the home. That's where it all starts. It has to start in the home. Then, obviously, you have other institutions like the church and, and, and whatnot, but the foundation is the home. And if the home isn't run right according to God's principles, it affects every level and strata of society, and we're seeing that today. Verse 18 and on talks about if people are injured, bodily injuries, and how they have to be compensated and compensate the victim. Notice verse 19. 
The one who struck him may be innocent, but he must pay for the injured person's loss of time. In other words, they can't work because they've been injured by this person. And guess what? It's up to the person who injured them to compensate the victim or their family for lost wages and medical expenses. God is saying there's no police force. (laughs) There's no government at this point. You all have to just learn to get along peacefully handle your things well with each other and respect one another and treat each other in a proper way. And if you do injure somebody, you need to pay for it. There's got to be consequences because God was also trying to instill in his people a deterrent to bad behavior. If you and I don't pay any consequences for our bad behavior, behavior, then there's really no deterrent. So God says, you've got to start having people pay for what they've done to other people. There's got to be compensation. He says in verse 21, however, if the injured servant survives one or two days, the owner will not be punished for he has suffered the loss of the productivity of the servant himself. Notice this, verse 22. If they fight and a woman gets injured who who is pregnant and there's no, you know, life injury there, then there's going to be a payment made, but no life for life. But verse 23, if there's serious injury, then you will give a life for life. And notice that God is protecting the life of even the unborn there. Then he talks about eye for eye, tooth for a tooth. Now, listen, the Israelites didn't literally do this. But what God was trying to do by setting this principle of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth down was to make sure that in their society, as they treated each other, that justice was equitable because God understood that when people get injured or hurt, they tend to go beyond a fair uh, means of justice and they might go beyond what is equitable. So God here is trying to teach his, his people, be equitable in your justice Don't go beyond what's happened to you. Again, all these principles. Notice even verse 26 and 27, and I'll I'll leave with these. If a man strikes the eye of his male servant or his female servant, again, going back to the lowest of society so that he destroys it, he will let the servant go free as compensation for the eye. If he knocks out a tooth, he will let the servant go free as a compensation for the truth. God is simply laying down principles to teach his people to act carefully and cautiously with one another. You can't just go around doing whatever you want to and not thinking a thing about how it's going to affect somebody else. Because we are all part of society. We are all part of a church. And, and you know, I, I think one of the things that I'll say is, I'm trying to wrap this up, is whether we want to admit it or not, the way God made us, we're all sensitive. Now, obviously, some of us are maybe more sensitive or less sensitive, but God made us in his image. Well, guess what? God's a sensitive God. Nicole and I were reminded of that as we're sort of partnering together and and stuff and working together. We were reminded that You know, the Spirit of God, it says in the Bible that the Spirit of God can be grieved and quenched. Well, if the Spirit of God wasn't sensitive, then why can he be grieved? 
by even the tiniest little thing. But he can, because God is a sensitive God. And so God made us in his image, which means we as human beings are sensitive creatures. And too often we, you know, go through life and the things that we say to others, the things we say about others, and we don't even give a thought as to the pain that we may be inflicting on that person. The Bible talks about how our words can be like the piercings of a sword and death and life are in the power of the tongue. And yet we live in a world today where we give no thought to what we say about others or to others. And I could go on and on. And, and, and you know, we can be the ones that are the victims of that too and be hurt by what others do and what others say. And so God here at the very outset of forming this nation into a nation of worshipers is saying, you can't worship me without it trickling down to how you treat your fellow men. You have to be a people, if you're going to worship me properly, that cares about others, that uses caution and care when it comes to how you treat one another. And if you do hurt somebody, you need to, be, you need to have, pay compensation for that. You need to make it right. Not only because that person needs to receive something from you in return, but God wants to build deterrence into our life so that we don't continue to say the things that are hurtful and do the things that are hurtful without any consequences. God said it shouldn't be that way. And by the way, that all starts in the home. That's where it needs to start, you see. And that's why God gave these principles. Well, I went over. I apologize. But let's pray. God, we thank you tonight that, Lord, even sometimes in these heavy chapters with so much, Lord, there's some good stuff in there for us, some good reminders, some good principles, God, for us even to live by. And I pray, God, if nothing else, that tonight we'll walk away realizing that our worship of you is connected with how we treat other people. We can't claim to love you and worship you and then treat other people terribly. That the way we treat others, Lord, is a reflection of even how we look at you. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be impressed upon our hearts tonight. And that, God, also that we would really check our motivation for what we do. Lord, do we truly do it because we love you or do we do it because we feel that it's our duty and obligation? Lord, may it always be out of love, God, for you. Because, Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Thank you, God, for loving us so much. And Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being patient with me tonight. God bless. We'll see you next week.